Chapter Two of the Empire of Russia, from the remotest periods to the present time. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jean Bascom. The Empire of Russia from the Remotest Periods to the Present Time by John S. C. Abbott. Chapter Two Growth and Consolidation of Russia. From 910 to 973. Expedition to Constantinople. Treaty with the Emperor. Last Days of Oleg. His Death. Igor Assumes the Scepter. His Expedition to the Don. Descent upon Constantinople. His Defeat. Second Expedition. Pusillanimity of the Greeks. Death of Igor. Regency of Olga, her character. Succession of Sviatoslav. His impiety and ambition. Conquest of Bulgaria. Division of the Empire. Defeat, ruin, and death of Sviatoslav. Civil War. Death of Oleg. Flight of Vladimir. Supremacy of Yaropolk. The fleet of Oleg successfully accomplished the navigation of the Danifer, followed by the horse along the shores. Each barge carried forty warriors. Entering the Black Sea, they spread their sails and ran along the western coast to the mouth of the Bosphorus. The enormous armament approaching the imperial city of Constantine by sea and by land completely invested it. The superstitious Leon, surnamed the Philosopher, sat then upon the throne. He was a feeble man, engrossed with the follies of astrology, and without making preparations for any vigorous defense, he contented himself with stretching a chain across the Golden Horn to prevent the hostile fleet from entering the harbor. The cavalry of Oleg, encountering no serious opposition, burnt and plundered all the neighboring regions. The beautiful villas of the wealthy Greeks, their churches and villages all alike, fell a prey to the flames. Every species of cruelty and barbarity was practiced by the ruthless invaders. The effeminate Greeks from the walls of the city gazed upon this sweep of desolation, but ventured not to march from behind their ramparts to assail the foe. Oleg drew his barges upon the shore, and dragged them on wheels toward the city, that he might from them construct instruments and engines for scaling the walls. The Greeks were so terrified at this spectacle of energy that they sent an embassage to Oleg, imploring peace, and offering to pay tribute. To conciliate the invader they sent him large presents of food and wine. Oleg, apprehensive that the viands were poisoned, refused to accept them. He, however, demanded enormous tribute of the emperor, to which the Greeks consented, on condition that Oleg would cease hostilities and return peaceably to his country. Upon this basis of a treaty the Russian array retired to some distance from the city, and Oleg sent four commissioners to arrange with the emperor the details of peace. The humiliating treaty exacted was as follows. 1. The Greeks engaged to give twelve grivnas to each man of the Russian army, and the same sum to each of the warriors in the cities governed by the dependent princes of Oleg. 2. The ambassadors sent by Russia to Constantinople shall have all their expenses defrayed by the emperor, 
and moreover the emperor engages to give to every russian merchant in greece bread wine meat fish and fruits for the space of six months to grant him free access to the public baths and to furnish him on his return to his country with food anchors sails and in a word with everything he needs on the other hand the greeks propose that the russians who visit constantinople for any other purposes than those of commerce shall not be entitled to this supply of their tables the russian prince shall forbid his ambassadors from giving any offence to the inhabitants of the grecian cities or provinces the quarter of st memes shall be especially appropriated to the russians who upon their arrival shall give information to the city council their names shall be inscribed and there shall be paid to them every month the sums necessary for their support no matter from what part of russia they may have come a particular gate shall be designated by which they may enter the city accompanied by an imperial commissary they shall enter without arms and never more than fifty at a time and they shall be permitted freely to engage in trade in constantinople without the payment of any tax this treaty by which the emperor placed his neck beneath the feet of oleg was ratified by the most imposing ceremonies of religion the emperor took the oath upon the evangelists oleg swore by his sword and the gods of russia in token of his triumph oleg proudly raised his shield as a banner over the battlements of constantinople and returned laden with riches to kiev where he was received with the most extravagant demonstrations of adulation and joy the treaty thus made with the emperor and which is preserved in full in the russian annals shows that the russians were no longer savages but that they had so far emerged from that gloomy state as to be able to appreciate the sacredness of law the claims of honour and the authority of treaties it is observable that no signatures are attached to this treaty but those of the norman princes which indicates that the original sclavonic race were in subjugation as the vassals of the normans oleg appears to have placed in posts of authority only his own countrymen oleg now as old age was advancing passed many years in quietude surrounded by an invincible army and with renown which pervaded the most distant regions no tribes ventured to disturb his repose his distance from southern europe protected him from annoyance from the powerful nations which were forming there his latter years seemed to have been devoted to the arts of peace for he secured to an unusual degree the love as well as the admiration of his subjects ancient annalists record that all russia moaned and wept when he died he is regarded as more prominently than any other man the founder of the russian empire he united though by treachery and blood the northern and southern kingdoms under one monarch he then by conquest extended his empire over the vast realms of barbarians bringing them all under the simple yet effective government of feudal lords he consolidated this empire and by sagacious measures encouraging arts and commerce he led his barbarous people onward in the paths of civilization he gave russia a name and renown so that it assumed a position among the nations of the globe notwithstanding its remote position amidst the wilds of the north his usurpation history cannot condemn in those days any man had the right to govern who had the genius of command genius was the only legitimacy but he was an assassin and can never be washed clean from that crime he died after a reign of thirty-three years and was buried with all the displays of pomp which that dark age could furnish upon one of the mountains in the vicinity of kiev 
which mountain for many generations was called the tomb of oleg igor now assumed the reins of government he had lived in kiev a quiet almost an effeminate life with his beautiful bride olga a very powerful tribe the drevolians which had been rather restive even under the rigorous sway of oleg thought this a favorable opportunity to regain their independence they raised the standard of revolt igor crushed the insurrection with energy which astonished all who knew him and which spread his fame far and wide through all the wilds of russia as a monarch thoroughly capable of maintaining his command far away in unknown realms beyond the eastern boundary of russia where the gloomy waves of the irtish the tobol the ural and the volga flow through vast deserts washing the base of fir-clad mountains and murmuring through wildernesses the native domain of wolves and bears there were wandering innumerable tribes fierce cruel and barbarous who held the frontiers of russia in continual terror they were called by the general name of pechenegues igor was compelled to be constantly on the alert to defend his vast frontier from the eruptions of these merciless savages this incessant warfare led to the organization of a very efficient military power but there was no glory to be acquired in merely driving back to their dens these wild assailants weary of the conflict he at last consented to purchase a peace with them and then seeking the military renown which oleg had so signally acquired he resolved to imitate his example and make a descent upon constantinople the annals of those days which seem to be credible state that he floated down the Danaper with ten thousand barges and spread his sails upon the waves of the Euxine. entering the bosphorus he landed on both shores of that beautiful strait and with the most wanton barbarity ravaged the country far and near massacring the inhabitants pillaging the towns and committing all the buildings to the flames there chanced to be at constantinople a very energetic roman general who was dispatched against them with a greek fleet and a numerous land force the greeks in civilization were far in advance of the russians the land force drove the russians to their boats and then the grecian fleece bore down upon them a new instrument of destruction had been invented the terrible greek fire attached to arrows and javelins and in great balls glowing with intensity of flame which water would not quench it was thrown into the boats of the russians enkindling conflagration and exciting terror indescribable it seemed to the superstitious followers of igor that they were assailed by foes hurtling the lightnings of jove in this fierce conflict igor having lost a large number of barges and many of his men drew off his remaining forces in disorder and they slowly returned to their country in disgrace, emaciate and starving. Many of the Russians taken captive by the Greeks were put to death with the most horrible barbarities. Igor, exasperated rather than intimidated by this terrible disaster, resolved upon another expedition, that he might recover his lost renown by inflicting the most terrible vengeance upon the Greeks. He spent two years in making preparations for the enterprise, called to his aid warriors from the most distant tribes of the empire, and purchased the alliance of the Pechenegues with an immense array of barges, which for leagues covered the surface of the Danaper, and with an immense squadron of cavalry following along the bank, he commenced the descent of the river. The emperor was informed that the whole river was filled with barges, descending for the siege and sack of Constantinople in terror he sent ambassadors to igor to endeavor to avert the storm 
the imperial ambassadors met the flotilla near the mouth of the daniper and offered in the name of the emperor to pay the same tribute to igor which had been paid to oleg and even to increase that tribute at the same time they endeavoured to disarm the cupidity of the foe by the most magnificent presents igor halted his troops and collecting his chieftains in council communicated to them the message of the emperor they replied if the emperor will give us the treasure we demand without our exposing ourselves to the peril of battle what more can we ask who can tell on which side will be the victory thus influenced igor consented to a treaty the opening words of this curious treaty are worthy of being recorded they were as follows we the ambassadors of igor solemnly declare that this treaty shall continue so long as the sun shall shine in defiance of the machinations of that evil spirit who is the enemy of peace and the fomenter of discord the russians promise never to break this alliance with the horde those who have been baptized under penalty of temporal and eternal punishment from god others under the penalty of being forever deprived of the protection of peroun of never being able to protect themselves with their shields of being doomed to lacerate themselves with their own swords arrows and other arms and of being slaves in this world and that which is to come this important treaty consisted of fourteen articles drawn up with great precision and in fact making the greek emperor as it were but a vassal of the russian monarch one of the articles of the treaty is quite illustrative of the times it reads if a christian kills a russian or if a russian kills a christian the friends of the dead have a right to seize the murderer and kill him this treaty was concluded at constantinople between the emperor and the ambassadors of igor imperial ambassadors were sent with the written treaty to kiev igor with imposing ceremonies ascended the sacred hill where was erected the russian idol of peroun and with his chieftains took a solemn oath of friendship to the emperor and then at a gauge of their sincerity deposited at the feet of the idol their arms and shields of gold the christian nobles repaired to the cathedral of st elias the most ancient church of kiev and there took the same oath at the altar of the christian's god the renowned russian historian nestor who was a monk in the monastery at kiev records that at the time there were numerous christians in kiev igor sent the imperial ambassadors back to constantinople laden with rich presents elated by wealth and success the russian king began to impose heavier burdens of taxation upon subjugated nations the drevlins resisted with an insufficient force igor entered their territories the drevlians with the fury of desperation fell upon him and he was slain and his soldiers put to rout during his reign he held together the vast empire oleg had placed in his hands though he had not been able to extend the boundaries of his country it is worthy of notice and of the highest praise that igor though a pagan imitating the example of oleg permitted perfect toleration throughout his realms the gospel of christ was freely preached and the christians enjoyed entire freedom of faith and worship his reign continued thirty-two years Sviatoslav, the son of Igor, at the time of his father's unhappy death, was in his minority. The empire was then in great peril. The Drevlians, one of the most numerous and warlike tribes, were in open and successful revolt. The army, accustomed to activity and now in idleness, was very restive. The old Norman generals, ambitious and haughty, were disposed to pay but little respect to the claims of a prince who was yet in his boyhood but providence had provided for this exigence 
Olga, the mother of Sviatoslav, assumed the regency, and developed traits of character which place her in the ranks of the most extraordinary and noble of women. Calling to her aid two of the most influential of the nobles, one of whom was the tutor of her son, and the other commander-in-chief of the army, she took the helm of state, and developed powers of wisdom and energy which have rarely been equaled and perhaps never surpassed. She immediately sent an army into the country of the Drevlians, and punished with terrible severity the murders of her husband. The powerful tribe was soon brought again into subjugation to the Russian crown. As a sort of defiant parade of her power, and to overawe the turbulent Drevlians, she traversed their whole country, with her son, accompanied by a very imposing retinue of her best warriors. Having thus brought them to subjugation, she instituted over them a just and benevolent system of government, that they might have no occasion to rise in revolt. They soon became so warmly attached to her, that they ever were foremost in support of her power. One year had not passed ere Olga was seated as firmly upon the throne as Oleg or Igor had ever been. She then, leaving her son Sviatoslav at Kiev, set out on a tour through her northern provinces. Everywhere, by her wise measures and her deep interest in the welfare of her subjects, she won admiration and love. The annals of those times are full of her praises. The impression produced by this visit was not effaced from the popular mind for five hundred years, being handed down from father to son. The sledge in which she travelled was for many generations preserved as a sacred relic. She returned to Kiev, and there resided with her son for many years in peace and happiness. The whole empire was tranquil, and in the lowly cabins of the Russians there was plenty, and no sounds of war or violence disturbed the quiet of their lives. This seems to have been one of the most serene and pleasant periods of Russian history. This noble woman was born a pagan, but the gospel of Christ was preached in the churches of Kiev, and she heard it and was deeply impressed with its sublimity and beauty. Her life was drawing to a close. The grandeur of empire she was soon to lay aside for the darkness and the silence of the tomb. These thoughts oppressed her mind, which was by nature elevated, sensitive, and refined. She sent for the Christian pastors, and conversed with them about the immortality of the soul, and salvation through faith in the atonement of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. The good seed of Christian truth fell into good soil. Cordially she embraced the gospel. That her renunciation of paganism and her confession of the Saviour might be more impressive, she decided to go to Constantinople to be baptized by the venerable Christian patriarch who resided there. The Christian emperor, Constantine Porphyrogenet, informed of her approach, prepared to receive her with all the pomp worthy of so illustrious a princess of so powerful a people. He has himself left a record of these most interesting ceremonies. Olga approached the imperial palace with a very splendid suite, composed of nobles of her court, of ladies of distinction, and of the Russian ambassadors and merchants residing at Constantinople. The emperor, with a corresponding suite of splendor, met the Russian queen at a short distance from the palace, and conducted her with the retinue to the apartments arranged for their entertainment. It was the ninth of September, 955. In the great banqueting hall of the palace there was a magnificent feast prepared. The guests were regaled with richest music. After such an entertainment, as even the opulence of the East had seldom furnished, there was an exchange of presents. 
the emperor and the queen strove to outvie each other in the richness and elegance of their gifts every individual in the two retinues received presents of great value the queen at her baptism received the christian name of helen we do not find any record of the ceremonies performed at her baptism it is simply stated that the emperor himself stood as her sponsor olga as she returned to kiev with her baptismal vows upon her and in the freshness of her christian hopes manifested great solicitude for her son who still continued a pagan but sviatoslav was a wild pleasure-seeking young man who turned a deaf ear to all his mother's counsels the unbridled license which paganism granted was much more congenial to his unrenewed heart than the salutary restraints of the gospel of christ the human heart was then and there as now and here the russian historian karamasin says in vain this pious mother spoke to her son of the happiness of being a christian of the peaceful spirit he would find in the worship of the true god how can i replied sviatoslav make a profession of this new religion which will expose me to the ridicule of all my companions in arms in vain olga urged upon him that his example might induce others to embrace the gospel of christ the young prince was inflexible he made no effort to prevent others from becoming christians but did not disguise his contempt for the christian faith and so persistently rejected all the exhortations of his mother whom he still tenderly loved that she was at last forced to silence and could only pray in sadness that god would open the eyes and touch the heart of her child the young prince having attained his majority in the year nine sixty four assumed the crown his soul was fired with the ambition of signalizing himself by great military exploits the blood of igor of oleg and of rurik coursed through his veins and he resolved to lead the russian arms to victories which should eclipse all their exploits he gathered an immense army and looked eagerly around to find some arena worthy of the display of his genius his character was an extraordinary one combining all the virtues of ancient chivalry virtues which guided by christian faith constitute the noblest men but which without piety constitute a man the scourge of his race fame was the god of sviatoslav to acquire the reputation of a great warrior he was willing to whelm provinces in blood but he was too magnanimous to take any mean advantage of their weakness he would give them a fair warning that no blow should be struck assassin-like stealthily and in the dark he accustomed his body spartan-like to all the fatigues and exposures of war he indulged in no luxury of tents or carriages and ate the flesh of horses and wild beasts which he roasted himself over the coals in his campaigns the ground was his bed the sky his curtain his horse blanket his covering and the saddle his pillow and he seemed equally regardless of both heat and cold his soldiers looked to him as their model and emulated his hardihood turning his attention first to the vast and almost unknown realms spreading out towards the east he sent word to the tribes on the don and the volga that he was coming to fight them as soon as they had time to prepare for their defences he followed his word here was chivalric crime and chivalric magnanimity marching nine hundred miles directly east from kiev over the russian plains he came to the banks of the don the region was inhabited by a very powerful nation called the khozars they were arrayed under their sovereign on the banks of the river to meet the foe the khozars had even sent for the greek engineers to aid them in throwing up their fortifications and they were in an entrenched camp constructed with much military skill a bloody battle ensued in which thousands were slain 
but Sviatoslav was victor, and the territory was annexed to Russia, and Russian nobles were placed in feudal possession of its provinces. The conqueror then followed the Don to the Sea of Azov, fighting sanguinary battles all the way, but everywhere victorious. The terror of his arms inspired widespread consternation, and many tribes, throwing aside their weapons, bowed the neck to the Russian king and implored his clemency. Sviatoslav returned to Kiev with waving banners, exulting in his renown. He was stimulated, not satiated, by this success, and now planned another expedition still more perilous and grand. On the south of the Danube, near its mouth, was Bulgaria, a vast realm, populous and powerful, which had long bid defiance to all the forces of the Roman Empire. The conquest of Bulgaria was an achievement worthy of the chivalry even of Sviatoslav. With an immense fleet of barges containing sixty thousand men, he descended the Danaper to the Euxine. Coasting along the western shore, his fleet entered the mouth of the Danube. The Bulgarians fought like heroes to repel the invaders. All their efforts were in vain. The Russians sprang from their barges on the shore, and, protected by their immense bucklers, sword in hand, routed the Bulgarians with great slaughter. Cities and villages rapidly submitted to the conqueror. The king of Bulgaria, in his despair, rushed upon death. Sviatoslav, laden with the spoils of the vanquished and crowned with the laurels of victory, surrendered himself to rejoicing and to all the pleasures of voluptuous indulgence. From these dissipations Sviatoslav was suddenly recalled by the tidings that his own capital was in danger, that a neighboring tribe of great military power, taking advantage of his absence with his army, had invested Kiev and were hourly expected to take it by assault. In dismay he hastened his return, and found to his inexpressible relief that the besiegers had been routed by the stratagem and valor of a Russian general, and that the city and its inhabitants were thus rescued from destruction. But the Russian king, having tasted the pleasures of a more sunny clime, and having rioted in the excitements of sensual indulgence, soon became weary of tranquil life in Kiev. He was also anxious to escape from the reproof which he always felt from the pious life of his mother. He therefore resolved to return to his conquered kingdom of Bulgaria. He said to his mother, I had rather live in Bulgaria than at Kiev. Bulgaria is the center of wealth, nature, and art. The Greeks send their gold and cloths, the Hungarians silver and horses, the Russians furs, wax, honey, and slaves. Wait, my son, at least till after my death, exclaimed Olga. I am aged and infirm, and very soon shall be conveyed to my tomb. This interview hastened the death of Olga. In four days she slept in Jesus. She earnestly entreated her son not to admit of any pagan rites at her funeral. She pointed out the place of her burial, and was interred with Christian prayers, accompanied by the lamentations and tears of all the people. Sviatoslav, in his foreign wars, which his mother greatly disproved, had left her with the administration of internal affairs. Nestor speaks of this pious princess in beautiful phrases as the morning star of salvation for Russia. Sviatoslav, having committed his mother to the tomb, made immediate preparations to transfer his capital from Kiev to the more genial clime of Bulgaria. Had he been influenced by statesmanlike considerations, it would have been an admirable move. The climate was far preferable to that of Kiev, the soil more fertile, and the openings for commerce through the Danube and the Euxine immeasurably superior but Sviatoslav thought mainly of pleasure. It was now the year 970. 
Sviatoslav had three sons, whom he established, though all in their minority, in administration of affairs in the realms from which he was departing. Yeropolk received the government of Kiev. His second son, Oleg, was placed over the powerful nation of Drevlians. A third son, Valdemar, the child of dishonor, not born in wedlock, was entrusted with the command at Novgorod. Having thus arranged these affairs, Sviatoslav, with a well-appointed army, eagerly set out for his conquered province of Bulgaria. But in the meantime the Bulgarians had organized a strong force to resist the invader. The Russians conquered in a bloody battle, and, by storm, retook Paraglesavets, the beautiful capital of Bulgaria, where Sviatoslav established his throne. The Greeks at Constantinople were alarmed by this near approach of the ever-encroaching and warlike Russians, and trembled lest they should next fall a prey to the rapacity of Sviatoslav. The emperor, Jean Zimiskis, immediately entered into an alliance with the Bulgarians, offering his daughter in marriage to Boris, son of their former king. A bloody war ensued. The Greeks and Bulgarians were victors, and Sviatoslav, almost gnashing his teeth with rage, was driven back again to the cold regions of the north. The Greek historians give the following description of the personal appearance of Sviatoslav. He was of medium height and well-formed. His physiognomy was severe and stern. His breast was broad, his neck thick, his eyes blue, with heavy eyebrows. He had a broad nose, heavy moustaches, but a slight beard. The large mass of hair which covered his head indicated his nobility. From one of his ears there was suspended a ring of gold, decorated with two pearls and a ruby. As Sviatoslav, with his shattered army, ascended the Dnieper in their boats, the Pechenegues, fierce tribes of barbarians, whom Sviatoslav had subdued, rose in revolt against him. They gathered in immense numbers at one of the cataracts of the Dnieper where it would be necessary for the Russians to transport their boats for some distance by land. They hoped to cut off his retreat, and thus secure the entire destruction of their formidable foe. The situation of Sviatoslav was now desperate. Nothing remained for him but death. With the abandonment of despair he rushed into the thickest of the foe, and soon fell a mangled corpse. How much more happy would have been his life! How much more happy his death had he followed the counsels of his pious mother! Coria, chief of the Pechenegues, cut off the head of Sviatoslav, and ever after used his skull for a drinking cup. The analyst, Strakovsky, states that he had engraved upon the skull the words, In seeking the destruction of others, you met with your own. A few fugitives from the army of Sviatoslav succeeded in reaching Kiev, where they communicated the tidings of the death of the king. The empire now found itself divided into three portions, each with its sovereign. Yeropolk was supreme at Kiev, Oleg reigned in the spacious country of the Drevlians, Valdemar was established at Novgorod. No one of these princes was disposed to yield the supremacy to either of the others. They were soon in arms. Yeropolk marched against his brother Oleg. The two armies met about one hundred and fifty miles northwest of Kiev, near the present town of Obrouch. Oleg and his forces were utterly routed. As the whole army, in confusion and disarray, were in pell-mell flight, hotly pursued, the horse of Oleg fell. Nothing could resist, even for an instant, the onswelling flood. He was trampled into the mire, beneath the iron hoofs of squadrons of horse and the tramp of thousands of mailed men. 
after the battle his body was found so mutilated that it was with difficulty recognized as it was spread upon a mat before the eyes of yeropolk he wept bitterly and caused the remains to be interred with funeral honours the monument raised to his memory has long since perished but even to the present day the inhabitants of zobruch point out the spot where oleg fell valdemar prince of novgorod terrified by the fate of his brother oleg and apprehensive that a similar doom awaited him sought safety in flight forsaking his realm he retired to the baltic and took refuge with the powerful normans from whom his ancestors had come yeropolk immediately dispatched lieutenants to take possession of the government and thus all russia as a united kingdom was again brought under the sway of a single sovereign End of chapter two